<laughs> yep, there it is. Yep. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Alpstrom. And today we'd like to welcome back our friend, Professor James Early. Howdy, James. Howdy, howdy. In 1862, the Confederate military launched an ambitious campaign from Texas to lay claim to the lands and riches of New Mexico and Arizona, culminating in disastrous defeat. This week, we continue our series on Texas in the Civil War with a look at the New Mexico campaign of 1862. But first, what's your favorite commercial unique to Texas? Well, I'll go first. In the Houston area, there used to be a chain of fried chicken uh fast food joints, kind of like KFC, but it was uh, Texas owned and, and operated. It was called Ron's Crispy Fried Chicken. And they used to have this commercial where this man, the stereotypical Texan, he had a cowboy hat on, he had a string tie and he was holding a bucket of KFC chicken, Kentucky Fried Chicken at the time they called it. And he picks up this drumstick and he holds it up to the camera and he, sa- he looks at the camera and he says, this chicken may be big enough for Kentucky, but it ain't big enough for texas and he tosses it back over his shoulder (laughs) (laughs) the whole idea was ron's chicken was much bigger you know big enough for texas it was great that's great well normally i would say stevie ray vaughn's don't mess with texas commercials uh uh, from back in the in the 80s but uh, i have just learned of a series of dallas area pizza in commercials that featured the fabulous von eric brothers in horrible acting uh, they're just brilliant in their 80s gobbledygook uh, nonsense. So, and plus, Pizza Inn had some of the worst pizza in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> I do remember Pizza Inn. Um, well, look, I'm going to throw it out there. It's classic. Uh, there's there's a lot of these, by the way. We could do a whole like another round of these commercials, but uh, whole episode. Whataburger in the 80s. I I remember. Uh, Mel Tillis was their spokesman and did a, you know, he's well known for his stutter and he would be like, a, 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 a burger. Um, but he had one, <laughs> they had this promotion where you could buy this really ugly coffee mug and then for a nickel you could get coffee and it was their nickel mug and, uh, in, in the whole joke was he'd come in and he'd, he'd be flustered and he'd be looking around and try to get it and he'd be like, well, well I, I, I had a nickel when I come in here and that was a big joke is that uh, everybody got their <laughs> coffee but him. So everybody had a nickel. It's the 80s. Yeah, nice. I, I remember those coffee cups, too. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot that I remember uh, growing up. Um, I think I've mentioned before in a previous episode the Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt Transmissions commercial that uh, I saw all the time on TV. Um, but one of the few uh, commercials I remember was the Pilgrim's Dry Cleaners commercials. Uh, they would always play the jingle... Uh, at the Astrodome uh, during Astros games because uh, they were one of the sponsors. But it's their their slogan, if you can't find a pilgrim in 10 minutes, you're lost. And uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, my parents probably still have some of their uh, paper-covered wire hangers uh, hanging hmm. in the closet back at their <laughs> house. So I remember those. Uh, they still have some pilgrim cleaners in the Houston area, by the way. Yeah, I was just doing some research on that, trying to find the jingle, and uh, apparently it is not easy to find if it's online, which is unfortunate. Well, there you go. 
Tweet us if you know a link, guys. All right, so let's get into the story. For decades prior to the Civil War, Southern leaders greedily eyed the lands west of the Louisiana Purchase. Most Southerners believed that in order for the Southern way of life to endure, slavery needed to expand, and the further, the better. The annexation of Texas, which was an area where slavery was legal already, greatly augmented the Southern Cotton Belt. But the status of the Northern territories of New Mexico that were won in the Mexican-American War was left unsettled by the Compromise of 1850. To the dismay of radical Southerners, the Compromise allowed the settlers of the New Mexico and Utah territories to choose whether they would enter the Union as free or slave states. Even worse, the Compromise allowed California to join the Union as a free state. California had never had institutional slavery, but the land was rich and the discovery of gold had made it very desirable to everyone. Combined, these two parts of the 1850 law brought the distinct possibility that the western border of Texas might become the farthest extent of slavery. Confined to the South, the lifestyle that wealthy Southerners so cherished, which was made possible by slavery, would ultimately wither and die. The problem ultimately festered and worsened through the Kansas-Nebraska crisis until it became one of the main causes of secession. When Texas finally seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy, the question of the Western territories and who they belonged to was very much real. California was a Union state, but New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and even Utah were in question. On one hand, they were enemy territory, but on the other hand, Confederate leaders saw the potential for a westward expansion, a longer border with Mexico, and an avenue of attack towards isolated California. If the Confederates could gain control of California, they would have access to its mineral wealth and stretch slavery from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific. There was also some support in parts of these territories for the Confederacy. Soon after the Confederate government was formed, delegates from southern Arizona and New Mexico voted to secede from the Union. Coincidentally, much of this territory had been part of the Gadsden Purchase, instigated by then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis to provide a southern route for a proposed transcontinental railroad. Now, the problem, of course, is that New Mexico alone contained hundreds of Union soldiers, many of whom were stationed only a few miles from West Texas. There were also significant posts in Arizona and Colorado and, of course, in California itself. These Union forces, which were generally there to fight the Indians, needed to be cleared out for the Confederates to conquer the Southwest. But who to command such a daunting mission? Fortunately, a recently reassigned United States Army major from Louisiana named Henry Sibling volunteered for the task. Sibley had graduated from West Point in 1838 and served in Texas, Mexico, Utah, and in New Mexico. So this made him actually a perfect man for the job since he knew the territory. In July 1861, Sibley was appointed Brigadier General in the Confederate Army and placed in command of the Department of New Mexico. Sibley traveled to Texas to organize a force to conquer the territory. By the end of the year, General Sibley assembled a brigade of three mounted regiments and marched into El Paso, where the troops prepared to launch their attack. But Sibley's force were not the first Confederates to invade New Mexico. Before Sibley's arrival, Texan Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor raised a force of 350 men and named it the Texas Mounted Rifles. Baylor was ordered by Confederate Colonel Earl Van Dorn, commander of the Department of Texas, to seize the abandoned federal forts in West Texas to march to El Paso and, if he deemed the situation favorable, lead an expedition to seize New Mexico. 
On July 1, 1861, Baylor captured Fort Bliss near El Paso. This fort would serve as a base for Confederate troops' invasions of New Mexico. Baylor's first target was Fort Fillmore, a federal installation 40 miles up the Rio Grande in New Mexico. It was commanded by Major Isaac Lind with about 700 Union soldiers. On July 23rd, Baylor and the Mounted Rifles reached the fort. Along the way, the Texans were hailed by the local settlers who held strong pro-Confederate sympathies. The next morning, the Texans occupied the town of Mesilla. Lind sent a message to Baylor demanding his surrender, which Baylor refused, even though he was outnumbered by more than two to one. Lind soon sent a battalion to attack the Texans, but the attack was hindered by cornfields and heavy sand, and the Federals were driven back in what later became known as the First Battle of Mesilla. Lind then ordered his forces to abandon the fort and retreat to Fort Stanton, which was about 150 miles to the northeast and far from the river. Baylor and his men followed the Federals, capturing up to 80 horses and nearly 200 men along the way. On July 27th, the Texans caught up with the Yankees, who were reduced to only a few hundred men and were heavily dehydrated, possibly due to their having filled their canteens with whiskey rather than water. That seems not smart. Baylor demanded <laughs> that... You know, that's something I just thought was... That's just a movie thing. Baylor demanded that Lynn surrender, and the frightened Union commander agreed. The federal troops were paroled, and the Texans returned to Fort Fillmore, where they refitted themselves with a great deal of captured Union equipment. On August 1st, Baylor issued a proclamation establishing the Confederate Territory of Arizona, with the 34th parallel as its northern boundary. Basically, if you look at a map, and instead of dividing Arizona and New Mexico vertically, just divide them horizontal across the middle, and this is kind of what you get. Baylor appointed himself as territorial governor and then traveled to Richmond to take a seat in Congress as the new territory's representative. In mid-December, General Sibley arrived at Fort Bliss and he quickly issued a proclamation announcing the annexation of New Mexico by the Confederacy, even though they'd already annexed New Mexico and Arizona anyway. But I guess he was going to do his deal. He also assumed command of the forces that Baylor left behind the previous summer. This brought Shipley's combined troop strength to 3,700, which he organized into four regiments. On July 4, 1862, Shipley and his brigade occupied Fort Thorne, which is an outpost 50 miles upriver from Mesilla that was evacuated by federal troops a few weeks earlier. On February 7th, Shipley continued northward along the river towards Fort Craig, which was guarded by a Union force of about 1,200 regulars, 2,000 New Mexico volunteers, of which one regiment was commanded by the legendary frontiersman, Kit Carson. There were also 500 militia and about 100 volunteers that came down from Colorado. Famed Civil War historian Shelby Foote wrote, The stage was set for the first major clash to determine who would control the Rio Grande. Union Colonel Edward Canby, the fort's commander, watched as Shipley's brigade marched up the right or eastern bank of the Rio Grande. Canby was prepared for the Confederates' arrival, and he was ready. <clears throat> Canby was prepared for the Confederates' arrival, ready for the attack. Canby was surprised to see the Confederates bypassing the fort, which was on the left or western bank of the river, continuing north in the direction of Albuquerque. Seeing that the rebels were threatening to cut off his communications with the New Mexico capital of Santa Fe, Canby realized that he had no choice but to try to stop them. On February 20th, Canby ordered one regiment to march north to Valverde Ford, cross the river, and surprise the leading elements of the Confederate Brigade. 
At Valverde, the attacking Federals were greeted by a barrage of Confederate cannon and rifle fire and took cover. When darkness fell that evening, the shaken Union soldiers withdrew across the river and informed their commander that the rebels were vulnerable to an attack. The next morning, Canby ordered most of the rest of the fort's garrison to reinforce the defeated regiment, force a crossing at Valverde, and attack the rebels. The crossing was accomplished, but only under withering Confederate fire. The Confederates launched a series of charges to push back the Federals, but each was repulsed. By mid-afternoon, Canby arrived with the remaining troops from the fort and took personal command of the Union forces. At about the same time, Confederate Colonel Tom Green took over for Sibley, who had become indisposed, possibly because he was drunk, as he was known to be an alcoholic. It's interesting. It seems like whiskey plays a large role in this battle, or this campaign, rather. Well, it's not the right time to be drinking. <laughs> Don't drink the water, right? As he took command of the Confederate Brigade, the aggressive Green launched an all-out assault on the Federals, who initially held firm, but eventually retreated in panic across the river, leaving many dead and wounded behind. As Green was preparing again to charge his demoralized foe, he saw a small party of bluecoats approaching with a flag of truce. Canby sent a request for an armistice to bury his dead and care for his wounded, a request that Green granted. The Federals returned to the fort while the victorious Confederates sat and awaited further orders. The next day, Sibley, now recovered and back in command, decided to leave the demoralized Federals in the fort and proceed northward. In this two-day struggle, later dubbed the Battle of Valverde, the Federals lost 263, the Confederates 187. The Confederate advance through New Mexico appeared unstoppable. Within a week, Sibley's brigade marched 100 miles further up the Rio Grande. The Confederates, who were now running low on supplies and who had lost many of their horses at Valverde, were hoping to gain much-needed supplies in Albuquerque. To their dismay, however, as they approached the town, the Confederates saw three great columns of smoke rising in the air. Approaching, Anticipating the rebels' arrival, the Union commander at Albuquerque took a page from history, and he burned the supply depot and retreated to Santa Fe. On March 1st, Sibley and his brigade took the few supplies that were left, rested briefly, and then continued on toward Santa Fe. There they found another empty town where the Reunion garrison again burned supplies and retreated still further north. The increasingly hungry and thirsty Confederates, with their clothes threadbare and their boots full of sand, had counted on receiving cheers, if not additional volunteers, from the locals when they, that they encountered on the end of their march. Instead, they found an increasingly unfriendly reception, particularly after they crossed that 34th parallel. Despite all of this, Sibley continued marching toward that last federal stronghold, Fort Union, located a few miles east of Santa Fe. Sibley knew that this fort housed all of the Union troops who had retreated from Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and he was in for a hard fight. Instead of attacking the fort head-on, Sibley attempted a flanking attack. He sent 600 men, mostly Texans, toward the mouth of Apache Canyon, which led to Las Vegas, the new federal capital of the territory, and then to the fort. The force's mission was to hold the mouth of the canyon and wait for the remainder of the Confederates to join them. Once the full force was assembled, it would march north and attack. On March 26th, the Texans learned that approximately 400 Federals were coming through the canyon on their way to attack Santa Fe. The Texans formed a line and prepared to unleash a withering barrage of cannon and rifle fire. To their great shock, however, the Texans began taking fire from above. As one rebel soldier later wrote, the Federals, quote, were upon the hills of both sides of us, shooting us down like sheep. 
The Texans had walked right into an ambush. They retreated to the mouth of the canyon where they made their stand. Soon a column of federal cavalry bore down upon them, causing the Texans to panic and flee, or in a few cases, surrender. In the day's fighting, the Texans lost 146 men, while the Federals lost only 19. By the third day of fighting, both sides received reinforcements and moved to face each other. Around noon, the two sides met at Glorietta Pass, described by one soldier as, quote, a terrible place for an engagement, a deep gorge with a narrow wagon track running along the bottom, the ground rising precipitously on each side, with huge boulders and clumps of stunted cedars interspersed. In this environment, maneuvering would be impossible, and the battle quickly turned into a giant melee, punctured by occasional rifle and cannon fire. Fighting went on for five hours, after which the two sides agreed to an armistice to care for their wounded and bury their dead. During the break in the fighting, the commander of the Texas troops learned that a force of Colorado volunteers had captured the Confederate supply train and killed nearly all of the Confederate horses and mules. With their position now untenable, the Texans retreated back to Santa Fe. The Coloradans wanted to pursue them, but the cautious Colonel Canby, still at Fort Craig, ordered them back to Fort Union. Four days later, on April 1st, Canby, now a brigadier general, led the Union force that remained in Fort Craig north to attack the remainder of Sibley's brigade. Sibley greeted the approaching bluecoats with artillery fire, which the Federals returned. Canby soon withdrew and sent orders for the garrison at Fort Union to reinforce him. Sibley, in turn, called on the Texans who'd survived the battle at Glorietta to join him. As Shelby Foote, wrote, as Shelby Foote writes, the great winner-take-all battle of the Southwest to which all that had gone before would have served as prologue seemed about to be fought near Albuquerque. The great showdown never happened. Sibley, nearly out of food and ammunition and in a decidedly pro-Union part of the country, realized that attacking the well-supplied bluecoats would be suicide. Instead, he ordered all of his remaining men to retreat down the Rio Grande back toward Fort Bliss. Canby's forces, now reinforced by the Fort Union garrison, pursued the Confederates. But despite their numerical advantage and the entreaties of his men, Canby refused to attack the rebels. Fearing a repeat of the Union disaster at Valverde, Canby was content to simply chase the Rebs back to Texas. For two days, the Federals chased their adversaries down the Rio Grande without firing a shot. Early on the third day, when Canby's soldiers were camped directly across the river from their Confederates, they noticed that despite the still-lit campfires, there was no sign of life in the opposing camp. Canby sent scouts, who discovered it completely empty. Sibley had ordered an evacuation the night before, leading his men on a 100-mile westward detour to avoid any contact with bluecoats who might be at Fort Craig. Canby and his troops marched to the fort, where they decided to stay. What followed for the Confederates was, as Foote describes it, quote, one of the great marches of all time and one of the great nightmares ever after for the men who survived it. Sibley's men, undertaking a 10-day march with only five days' worth of food and water, did not have to face any enemy soldiers. Instead, they fought heavy brush and undergrowth, mountain slopes, severe heat, and parching dryness, finally reaching the Rio Grande in late April and Fort Bliss in early May. It was somewhere in this epic retreat that a handsome blonde drifter, a brutish thug, and a murderous mercenary drifted in and out of the story. <laughs> yep, there it is. Yep. By the time they returned to Texas, Sibley's brigade had suffered 1,700 casualties, only 500 of which had fallen or happened in battle. The remaining 1,200 had fallen by the wayside during the grueling 100-mile march through the desert. 
the broken and disillusioned Sibley, Senator Portrait of Richmond writing that, quote, except for its geographical position, the territory of New Mexico is not worth a quarter of the blood and treasure expended in its conquest. As a field for military operations, it possesses not a single element except in the multiplicity of its defensible positions. The indispensable element, food, cannot be relied upon. <laughs> when all 2,000 survivors of his brigade arrived at Fort Bliss, Sibley assembled them, thanked them for their service, and ordered them to continue the retreat to San Antonio. There, the unit was disbanded. There would actually be one more fight in the New Mexico Territory, which was a skirmish fought in the desert near Mercilla on June 1st, 1862, which ended with a Union victory. Shelby Foote sums up the result of the disastrous Confederate dreams for New Mexico quite beautifully. It was finished. All the high hopes and golden dreams had come to nothing, like the newly founded territory of Arizona, which had gone out of existence with his departure. Any trouble the Unionists might encounter in the upper Rio Grande Valley from now on would have to come from Rattlers and Apaches. The Confederates were out of there for good. As far as New Mexico and the far west were concerned, the Civil War was over. Well, this is a uh, this is a bummer of a story, guys. <laughs> if you're a Texan or a Confederate, yes. <laughs> Depends on which side you're on. No, and say hey, clearly they should have uh, stocked up on beer instead of whiskey. <laughs> at least there's at least there's water in beer. Yes, and I I think that quite clearly this is the only time that Coloradans ever got the better of any Texans. <laughs> yeah, well, good old Kit Carson. It's yeah. true. It's true. Well, it's just one of those things of it's like, oh, we're going to wander the desert. And uh, But it, I will say that all of these settings are, while they're terrible, they're very cinematic in the description of like, uh, of the, the one-sidedness and then, or the few, or, or completely futile. Yeah. Well, while there's stretches of desert, if you look at the map of the Rio Grande, it, it skirts, along through the Rocky Mountains, you know, so in New Mexico. So then the point that Sibley made, which was the multiplicity of defensive positions, that, you know, there was a lot of places that the Union could dig in and over, you know, overcome any odds that they had, you know, that came against them. You know, the Apaches proved that for centuries. But um, that was that's the deal, is that the, the, they overestimated their capability of, conquering the area and they overestimated the support they were going to have uh in new mexico you know the the texans who went on the foolish expedition of santa fe in mm-hmm. uh, way back in 1839 uh sort of found the same thing when they got to santa fe the mexicans were in charge and they didn't really care to not be in charge so um I think that's the that's kind of the lesson is that it was a our reach exceeded our grasp in this case for the the Texans and the Confederacy. Yeah, I think this is a classic example of uh, Confederate and especially Texan hubris. I mean, you know, we got to poke fun at ourselves. Texans are not famous for being very humble people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and you you when you read about the Civil War, you read about how especially at the beginning, before the war even really got going, that. A lot of Confederates said, well, you know, one rebel, one of us can whip 10 Yankees. You know, they just, they thought because, I mean, it's true that Southerners, for the most part, most of them were raised riding horses, hunting, uh, shooting. And so they, they knew how to, how to ride horses. They knew how to fight. They knew how to uh, fire a gun. 
but they just thought, well, the Yankees are a bunch of uh, shopkeepers and grocers and bankers and things like that, and they're just a bunch of wimps. So we can. Well, th- there's no Yankee force that can stand up against a Confederate force. And mm-hmm. I think they thought, well, hey, there's here's this land to the west. We want it. Let's go take it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing there but a bunch of daggum Yankees. So we'll we'll whip them. Well, the thing with that is, is that uh, is we find is the the hubris is always great in these stories. But the other part is the fact that, like, you know, uh, as we said last time, you know, Sam Houston warned them. He said, "Look, the northern northern person, their blood doesn't run hot like ours. But once they get moving, you know, they are forced yeah. to reckon with." And it uh, mm-hmm. and it certainly proved uh, prophetic. Also, well, and Sam Houston very famously said, "Like, don't fight a campaign <laughs> west of Texas." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the thing is that these are not Northerners; these are Westerners. These yeah. are these are these are a the the primary trained combat troops of the United States Army of the time, which is in the forts of the West. So that's one thing. The other thing is that they're local New Mexicans and local Coloradans and local Arizonans who had been fighting uh, Navajo and Apache for decades, you know, and having to defend themselves. And so, you know, this that same hardy, that same hardy outdoor spirit, you know, industrious spirit that brought people to Texas and brought people to the Texas frontier, brought people to the New Mexico frontier and the Colorado frontier. So it's not like these are shopkeepers and, and bankers and things. And no, these no, are, no. Yeah, these are these are tough people who live a tough life, uh, in a in a very uh, while it's a in some ways a rich and prosperous land. It's also a difficult land. So, you know, like you know, like they said, the Battle of Glorieta Pass. It's a it's a very narrow defile uh, through the mountains, and they fought a battle there. So, they didn't quite learn the ba- the lessons of Thermopylae. They didn't quite learned the le- the union certainly learned the lessons of uh the fabian strategy of rome you know mm-hmm. and of and of the russians against the, the russians Roman, which yeah. is burn everything as your enemy comes approaching you because the iron law of logistics is going to come smashing down on them if they have no way to resupply yeah and you guys mentioned sam houston earlier and i i kept thinking about the runaway scrape exactly you know i just back, back up back up back up back up and then bam hit them you know it's yeah kinda, I don't know that Houston burned a lot of stuff. I don't. I don't oh, know they did. They did. No, they burned they quite did. a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. They yeah, burned maybe. everything that they could. Yes. Yeah. Because so, and they. So they yeah. Did. I mean, Houston warned, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Sean and and Mike. Houston said, "Guys, don't do this. You don't want to fight these people. You may win at the beginning. You may have a few early victories, but they're going to once they're ready to go, they're going to hit you hard. And that's exactly what happened. It's almost like Sam Houston's prophecy." Uh, was fulfilled in this campaign. Well, and, you know, like, the funny thing is, is that, uh, yeah, for some reason, there's a terrible movie called The Legend of the Lone Ranger that I saw as a little kid. And uh, there's a a scene where um, these rangers, at the beginning of it, it's kind of like the beginning of Knight Rider or any kind of great story of the you know the the emergence of it, but essentially he wanders into a canyon, and there's a a cross. You know they're just set up, and they wander just into. You know they're in the bottom of this canyon, and and everybody pops out of the rocks, and they just start shooting him and and shooting everybody up, and and it's an ambush. And and I think the these guys just walked into um, situation after situation. It also doesn't help when. 
Um, the person wearing the daddy pants is a falling down alcoholic. <laughs> well, and that that was the reason he was still a major after nearly tw- you know after several decades in the military in a West Point career, and that was why he didn't really do anything after this. He's actually court-martialed for being drunk in a battle. Later, yeah, he so. he's going to go on and fight in the uh, the Overland campaign, which is a an attempt to invade Texas before the Red River campaign. I'm, we're going to talk about that eventually, but and he yeah he got got in trouble there too, and he ends up dying in poverty. Uh, Sibley does, and at, at about the age of seventy or so, it's a really sad yeah. story. So the interesting thing I think also about this battle is that, you know this is a famous battle. Uh, that's it's a famous battle for for something that's very little not very well known, uh, which is kind of a contradictory statement, but uh, it is an important battle in the Civil War, but I think it's, 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 it's an interesting battle because most of the battles in or around Texas, there's very few of them, but the, the ones that are, are known as the Battle of Sabine Pass, which we did an episode about quite a while ago, uh, the Battle of Palmito Ranch, which is the last battle of the Civil War, uh, the and then the Battle of Galveston, which mm-hmm. was you know the retaking of Galveston, and then as you said, the Red River Campaign, the Battle of Mansfield, which actually was fought, which is the largest battle fought over Texas, but it was fought in Louisiana. All of these things were victories for the Confederacy. This was a major defeat for the Confederacy, uh, and again, it did not happen in Texas, but it was related to Texas, and it was a, a Texas campaign that was initiated from Texas and mostly consisted of Texas troops. So this is a defeat for Texas, which was unusual. You know, when you go back into the discussion about with Texas in the civil war and most Texans will somewhat ironically and proudly say, well, the South lost the civil war, but Texas did not. Well, this is a case where the South did certainly lose a part of the civil war. Yeah, and then Texas lost, basically, because it was Texas versus New Mexico. And, you know, another thing about this battle is it, it settled once and for all the issue of what is going to be the boundary of the Confederacy mm-hmm. and what is going to be the boundary of slavery, although slavery wasn't going to last too much longer, obviously. But, uh, you know, had had things gone a little bit differently, you might have had, at least temporarily, the Confederacy would have spread further west. I don't think it would have made it all the way to California, but it might have gone at least through uh, southern New Mexico or Arizona, as they called it at the time, because the population there was actually very sympathetic to the Confederacy below the 34th parallel, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. So in yeah. the in the grand scheme of things, is this just a... All right, so put it this way. So in the grand scheme of things, this this is cost money, this cost time, this cost some resources. But But frankly, was this like... This wasn't something that like hinged the whole of the of the civil war on it. I mean, they were never going to be able to create this passage to the West that they wanted. They were never going to be able to launch campaign against California. You don't know that though. That's the thing. So this is, this is an example. So when we look at the grand scope of the civil war, there were several campaigns in 1862 and 1863 where the South, the Confederacy tried to extend its arm out of the state, the formal state boundaries of the Confederacy. So they, they tried to invade. They sent invasion forces into Kentucky. Lee would go into Maryland. Then in 1863, there would be, of course, the Gettysburg campaign. So this is this is one of the early, the first examples of this, where like like James said, where they're trying to extend the Confederacy and by extension slavery out of the natural boundaries of the Confederacy. 
to to these new areas because the more ground that they take of the unions, the better position they have in the long run in 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 what was at that point anticipated maybe not to be a military victory, but to be either a negotiated peace or to entice the British and the French to intervene in the war to stop it. Right. Mm-hmm. So so the more the more the Confederate arms could reach out and grab of territory that either it considered its own or you know Maryland and, and Kentucky were slave states, they just stayed in the Union. Pennsylvania in eighteen sixty three was never a slave state. So so that was clearly above the, the Mason Dixon line. So to have that action and that's the same thing with the Red River campaign is or sorry, that's the same thing with the New Mexico campaign is to extend out that arm of the Confederacy into a land that it didn't have before. You know, it was entirely possible that they could have taken at least the land below the 34th parallel and and held on to things. It's doubtful, like we said. There's a lot of Union troops in the area, and certainly California was never a slave state and it was fairly populous at the time. So, and, and the, those California citizens and troops really didn't make it further east into the war. So they they kind of stayed. They they were pretty safe. So the, we weren't really going to go into necessarily California unless something radically changed. But the point is, is that this does have strategic importance in the in the overall war. It 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 Confederacy never had success in reaching out of its natural boundaries. Is the point? Can I bring up one uh, interesting point that I think is kind of funny? It's a little off topic here, but it, it's a fun fact. Um, during the fun battle fact, of, fun fact, dun, 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 uh, during the Battle of Valverde, one of the Confederate units that participated in the charge that we talked about was a cavalry company that was armed with lances, just lances. Okay, like like we're talking about medieval knights or something without the armor. <laughs> Can you imagine that? charge and we're pretending to be knights we're going to joust it was the first and only time that a lancer company fought in the civil war i guess they decided you know that doesn't really work too well again when you're getting cannonballs shot in your face <laughs> and, and grape shot and all that other stuff but uh i just thought that was kind of interesting i can't imagine bed i can't imagine bedford force would have much use for uh lancers I can't imagine volunteering to do that. You know, yes, I'll charge a cannon with nothing but a lance. I, I would imagine those Texas Rangers that were on the along the campaign were like, "You need some more guns, boy." <laughs> <laughs> more whiskey too. While we're at it, I gotta want. I gotta ask the one last question here. I think. The, I think we're kind of at the end of this one. But <clears throat> okay, so I'll put on my hairy turtle dove hat and I'll ask him some fictional history stuff. Um, <laughs> let's assume. That the uh, the Great Camel Corps um, that was disbanded <laughs> had not been disbanded. Would the uh, extended range and mobility of camel trains given them the uh, an advantage in this desert terrain? That's a great question because that fort, the forts that they were in, which I believe was Stockton and uh, uh, it was definitely Stockton and uh, uh, Davis, Fort Davis. We did go over to Confederate hands. So mm-hmm. that's a great question and would have helped out considerably. <laughs> it might have helped. They might have helped on that insane 100 mile detour they took through the desert in which they lost 1,200 people. That was just absolutely nuts. They would have been better just to just march by the fort and take your lumps. You know, I don't think they would have lost as many people that way. That's not really the answer to your question. But anyway, there you yeah, go. Yeah, that's a great question, though. Um, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, 
So if you're an expert on camels, yeah, you know the guy who has one and uh, brings it for the nativity scene at Christmas. <laughs> Shoot yeah. us a line. It was uh, it was Camp it was Camp Verde. It was Camp Verde that Camp fell Verde, into yeah. Federer's, and it did indeed. There were still a few camels floating around. Yeah, it's just interesting when we talked about that um, a while back. It was it was just interesting because like, well, they're smelly, they're weird, they spook the horses. We don't like them. We're not using yeah. them, and it's well, like, mm, well, you're you're gonna fight a desert campaign, so 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 here's a here's a here's the thing, Mike. I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry on it, mm-hmm. and remembering back in 1861, Camp Verde fell into Confederate hands until 1865, and when they fell into Confederate hands, the Confederate commander issued a receipt to the United States for 12 mules, 80 camels, and two Egyptian camel drivers. Um, there was some reports of them being used to transport baggage but no evidence of their being associated with Confederate units. So they had the camels. They could have taken them with them. Even more to my point. Yeah. Yes. Because this is Call where... back. <clears throat> Good callback, sir. This is where... Listen, this is where Lawrence of Arabia says, I bring you desert power. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the last thing is that... So we did make a mention of it, a reference to it, but if you want to see a dramatic representation of the uh, retreat back from Glorietta Pass and the Battle of Glorietta Pass. Go watch The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly about an hour and a half into the movie. It's a very long movie. A very long movie, but uh, it is it is actually pretty fairly accurate. Uh, so, check it out. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd like to thank Professor Early for joining us in this fascinating discussion. We're going to have James back on to talk more about Texas and the Civil War in future episodes. You can also find James regularly posting on the American History Fanatics Facebook group, which is a lively place for discussion and debate of all things American history. We'd love to hear from you, so get out there, like us, and share us on Facebook. Follow our show on Twitter, at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm on Twitter at MacSean. Two ends. And I am Scotticus. So, you like this show? You like desert battles of the Civil War and other interesting facets of Texas history? Tell your friends about what we're doing. Leave a review on iTunes because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially please visit patreon.com slash Texas podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>